listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Today's reading is from Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 15. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain have the workers from their toil? I have seen the business that God has given to everyone to be busy with. He has made everything suitable for its time. Moreover, he has put a sense of past and future into their minds, yet they cannot find out what God has done for them. They cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to be happy and enjoy themselves as long as they live. Moreover, it is God's gift that all should eat and drink and take pleasure in all their toil. I know that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done this so that all should stand in awe before him. That which, that which is already has been, that which is to be already is, and God seeks out what has gone by. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks. Thank you, Joanne, for that reading. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> we are about three weeks into the book of Ecclesiastes, and I got to say, the feedback so far has been very polarizing. Um, <clears throat> I've heard from a number of you who are loving this book. Like, like people who never comment on the sermons are coming up to me after church and saying, like, Ecclesiastes speaks to me, right? Um, which, which, which is awesome. You're in a dark place, clearly. Um, and zero judgment. <clears throat> zero judgment. I'm, I'm there, too. I love this book. I'm, I'm right there with you. Um, but then there's at least an equal number of you who are not liking this book at all. Um, some of us are very troubled by the teacher and his kind of musings on life and vanity and all these, all these things. Um, and that's actually fun, too, because I get to stand up here and watch you squirm, uh, which, which is just a lot of fun. It brings joy. <clears throat> now, um, today we are going to be diving into what is probably the most famous part of Ecclesiastes. Uh, in fact, I know this is the most famous passage in this book because two weeks ago when we started this series, at least eight of you came up to me after church and were like, are you going to play the song? 
If, if you don't know what song I'm talking about, that's okay. Uh, it just means you're not old enough to have grandkids yet. <laughs> um, the, song, the song I'm referring to uh, is the hit single from 1965, Turn, Turn, Turn uh, by The Birds. Uh, and if you saw the news... Oh, don't start it yet. Don't start it yet. Go back, go back. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> jump the gun. It's okay. If you saw the news... Uh, this past week, very sad news, David Crosby, who was a founding member of the Birds, just passed away on Wednesday. So sad. Um, the dude was a legend. And here I am, the millennial. I'm like, the guy from Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young was in another band? What? You know. Anyway. Um, but, but so I, I think it's appropriate. And you might have to use the mouse, genre to, to slide it back. I don't know if it'll start at the beginning or not. If you hover over the speaker, uh, maybe. But I think it's appropriate in his honor to, to play the So it just occurred to me, we are going to totally get pulled off YouTube for copyright infringement. Um, but it's worth it. <clears throat> it's worth it. It's worth it. Um, R.I.P. David Crosby. It's all good. Um, so yeah, this, this passage is famous. Some folks were commenting, didn't even realize that, that this was straight out of the Bible. The, the birds took Ecclesiastes 3, this poem, and set it to music. Um, this passage is also really well known from funerals. Uh, Ecclesiastes 3 is read at a lot of memorial services. Um, there's something comforting to this poem. Uh, the poetic nature, the back and forth, the parallels of birth and death, tears and laughter, mourning and dancing. That's a perspective that has brought comfort to an awful lot of people. Of course, if there's one thing that we've learned about Ecclesiastes so far, uh, it's not super comforting, right? Um, so, so who's ready to have this passage just completely ruined today? Anybody? I'm just, I'm kidding. Zach's ready. It's not going to be that bad. It won't be that bad. <clears throat> um, let's actually start with the second half of this passage. Because as famous as this poem is, from the first eight verses, uh, the second half of this passage gives the context for this poem, and it's a lot less familiar to us. Uh, starting in verse 9. What gain do workers have from their toil? I have seen the business that God has given to everyone to be busy with. He has made everything suitable for its time. Moreover, God has put a sense of past and future into their minds, yet they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to be happy and enjoy themselves as long as they live. Moreover, it is God's gift that all should eat and drink and take pleasure in all their toil. I know that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done this so that all should stand in awe before him. That which is has already, uh, has already been. That which is to be already is. And God seeks out what has gone by. 
mysterious, right? Um, there's some darkness there, right? There's, there's, you get a bit of frustration. What do the laborers, laborers actually benefit from their toil? We've seen that theme before in this book. But there's also some hope. There's this sense that God is in control, and whatever God does, whatever God's involved with, endures forever. But there's a problem. Human beings can't seem to wrap our minds around what God is up to. Uh, There's that famous line there, God has put a sense of past and future into their minds, yet they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. There's a very real sense that our sense of time, our experience of time and reality is somehow out of sync with what God is doing. Now, we live in a very time-obsessed culture. Uh, We live our lives by the clock, punching in, punching out, uh, schedules, calendars, apps, reminders going off on your phone uh, day and night, deadlines. So much of our daily life is driven by time. Uh, We try to dominate time. We try to manage it and plan for it, save it, and yet we never have enough of it. We're always running out of time find ourselves out of sync with God's time. Seen in this context, I think this poem in Ecclesiastes 3 is actually challenging a number of myths that our culture holds up about time and life and how all this stuff works. This poem has some really kind of jarring, eye-opening implications for how we live and operate day to day. Let's start with this one, first kind of myth that I think this pushes against. Against the myth of endless prosperity, this passage drives home the importance of a sacred rhythm. You might have noticed, we should wait a minute and offer a prayer for whatever's happening. So you might have noticed, but the rhythm of life, the pace of life in our kind of 21st century capitalist culture is unsustainable. It's always go, go, go. Work, work, work. Produce, produce, produce. With no end in sight, no time for rest, this, what we call Protestant work ethic, has led to all sorts of great things, uh, discoveries, technologies that most human beings never could have imagined. Um, We've cured diseases, lifted people out of poverty, got to the moon. All it cost us was the earth, our families, and our sanity. That's it. That's all, all things we can apparently live without. That's what it's costing us. We are working ourselves to death as a culture, as a society. Uh, We're working the planet to death in this endless pursuit of more. The teacher calls that toil, and he says that it's vanity. Um, If we had our way uh, as, as human beings, life would probably be just like an endless spring. Constant harvest with no need to sow, no need to let the ground rest and wait. If we had our way, there would be no winter. Now, I can tell you, I lived in a part of the country with no winter 
uh, for seven years when Aaron and I were out in Southern California. Um, it was great. The weather was always nice. It was always sunny. They say one of the most meaningless jobs in the world is to be a weatherman in Southern California because, <clears throat> like, it's always nice. It's always nice. In the winter, you know, you get two months where it's nice with some rain. Uh, in the summer, there's a couple months where it's, like, nice but hot, and the rest of the time, it's just nice. Um, you start to go a little crazy without seasons, though. Like, I know I did. You start to lose your place in time. There's no rhythm. Every day is just the same. Um, I remember there was this one stretch out in L.A. where it was nice for two years straight. Every day was beautiful and sunny and warm. You could eat outside. You'd make plans to go to the park or the beach, and you never had to worry about the weather turning against you. It was, it was great. It's one of the longest droughts in over 100 years. There were water advisories. <clears throat> the suggestion was to only shower for 10 minutes every other day, if possible. Um, don't flush your toilets if you don't have to. That's how, that's how desperate they got for water. Um, you'd go to a uh, restaurant, forget about getting ice in your drink, they couldn't give it to you. Forget about ice, like you know, a glass of water when you sit down, not happening. Um, there were specific days and times when you were allowed to water your lawn and neighbors were like calling the police on each other for like lawns that looked suspiciously green, right? Like that was, that was life for two years. But it was nice. The weather was great. Uh, there were fires like I had never seen before. Uh, there was one day where, well actually, it was more like a week where uh, Miriam, uh, her daycare was closed because it was too close to one of the fires. Um, some days you'd get up and it looked like it was snowing, but it was actually ash raining down from the sky. And of course, all the flooding that's happening now in California is just made worse by this drought and decades of mismanaging water in that state to produce more and more and more and more. This is where an endless spring gets us. Over and against that, um, against our need to endlessly produce, Ecclesiastes points to this divinely ordained rhythm. A time to plant and a time to pick up what is planted. A time to break down, a time to build up, a time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to throw away, a time to tear, and a time to sow. And in between, we wait and rest. We need that rhythm. We depend on it. The earth needs it. There is a divinely ordered pattern of existence that we are invited into. We ignore it at our peril. Our goal shouldn't be to arrive at some like frozen form of perfection, right? If we get it right, this like utopia of our own making. God has designed existence to be this dynamic, unfolding, weaving process where there's winter and summer, day and night. So basic, they spell it out on the first page of the Bible, right? We can learn to live in harmony with that rhythm or we can rebel against it and destroy ourselves. We like to think that we're in control, that we can manage it all, time, seasons, productivity, with our own power and ingenuity. But that gets at one of the more disturbing ways this passage challenges us, and it's this next myth I want to talk about. 
Against the myth of being able to control time, this passage highlights the fact that we have no control. Oh, you guys aren't going to like this one. <clears throat> I don't like this one. This poem highlights some of the most fundamental elements of our existence, right? Birth and death, uh, planning and harvest, tears, mourning, dance, laughter. These are like the building blocks of human life. And we have no control over almost all of them. You don't get to choose when you cry and when you laugh, right? We cry and laugh, we mourn and dance in response to things that happen to us. When I think of like the most joyous moments of my life, they aren't the times I planned for. You know the times when like everything lined up perfectly with what I had on Google Calendar? Like those aren't those aren't the joyous days. It was the time when we least expect it, when we don't see it coming, when God sneaks up on us and surprises us, moves us to tears, birth and death, joy and mourning, love and hate, war and peace. Good luck charting any of those in a day planner. <clears throat> it's not how it works. We are so obsessed with trying to uh, control time, but we don't even get a say in the most basic stuff. We so value our power and our free will when so much of what we do, so much of what we choose is based on factors that predate us. Uh, I remember back when I was a youth pastor many years ago, um, there was this young woman, uh, one of my students, who graduated from high school and she went off to college. Um, and when she came back over Thanksgiving break, we met up for lunch, and I remember she was freaking out. Like she was having like a quarter-life crisis. It was, it was, it was wild. Um, this girl's parents had done a pretty good job of sheltering her most of her life. Always a good idea to like shelter your kids from reality. Um, but like she, she went to a very small private Christian high school. She lived in a small, almost entirely all-white neighborhood. Most of her friends were her cousins. Like that was, that was um, her life. And then she went off to college, and she met people who were different from her, who thought differently, who looked differently, who believed differently, and it shook everything. She was freaking out. She, I remember she was like, these friends I've made, they're not all that different from me. If I was raised in their families, if I grew up going to synagogue or mosque instead of church, I don't think I'd be a Christian. And I was like, yeah, that's, kinda, that's probably right. That's, that's kind of how it works. Um, if you were born, if you were born in a different family, a different time, a different culture, a different place, a different faith, you would be a different person with a different personality, a different set of views, making different decisions. Uh, welcome to human existence. If you were born 500 years ago, you'd have only had like a 50% chance of surviving infancy. That, that one blew her mind, I remember. But we are not as in control as we like to think we are. Even the choices we do make, the free will we exercise, is exercised within limits. We have a narrow range of options to choose from that we didn't create often. And usually the, the poorer you happen to be, the more disadvantaged you are, the less options you typically have to choose from. 
We are dancing to a tune that we didn't write. The key was set before we were born. The rhythm can change at any time. God is the composer and the conductor. We don't conduct the orchestra of our lives. God does. God is in control. The question is, can we learn to dance? Can we learn to improvise, to flow with God's rhythm as part of God's song? Can we be attentive to where God is at work, where God is moving? Can we listen for God? Can we follow God's lead in our lives? It takes incredible humility to acknowledge that we're not in control. I'm uh, still coming to terms with it as I preach this sermon, just to be like, you know, fully transparent. (laughs) We'll see where I land on this. But it takes even more humility to follow, to actually follow where God is leading us. Cuts against the grain of our hyper-individualism, but that's the wisdom this poem is offering us. One more cultural myth uh, I want to highlight that this passage undermines. And this one's a bit painful. Against the myth of living forever, this passage presents life as a story with a beginning and an end. Our culture tells us that we're going to live forever. That's the message we get 24-7 from marketing, from advertising. If you buy the right product, uh, if you take the right supplements, if you hit the gym, you can extend your life maybe indefinitely. Who knows? If nothing else, we're told that we can make an impact in this world that's going to outlive us. If we are successful enough, if we work hard enough, we can build a monument, erect a statue, leave a legacy that's going to stand forever. We banish all signs of death from our culture. I don't know if you've noticed this. We cultivate our environments from like parks to sidewalks, shopping malls, all neatly trimmed and organized. We cover up signs of aging with makeup and injections. We banish our oldest population to homes where they can age without kind of disturbing the rest of life. And I don't want to throw nursing homes under the bus. They do a lot of good. A lot of people need that care. But there was a time when that stage of life wasn't so segmented off, when it wasn't happening somewhere else while we were here. For most of human history, death was a very uh, public part of life. Um, If you lived on a farm in some ancient culture, you saw death every day. Um, If you lived in an intergenerational household where there were, you know, three or more generations under one roof, you saw aging. Not so much in our culture. The church is maybe one of the only places left, one of the only institutions left where we interact regularly with folks of, enter- of other generations. Have you, I realized that this week, and it's like, wow, what a gift the church can offer to the world. 
We idolize movie stars, um, celebrities, social media influencers, these people <clears throat> that we see on our screens and on billboards who are just like eternally young in our memories. And that removes us even further from this reality that life comes to an end. Uh, last summer, I read the book Robin by Dave Iscoff. Really good book, a biography of Robin Williams. Robin Williams was one of those celebrities for me. I idolized this guy as a kid. Um, I remember watching reruns of Mork and Mindy when I was little with my mom on Nick at Night. Do you guys remember Nick at Night? Anybody? Yes, Nick at Night. Man, the energy of this guy. He had like the same energy I felt as a six-year-old, only he was like a grown-up with, with body hair, a lot of body hair. Um, <laughs> I was captivated by Robin Williams. And then, this guy was the genie in Aladdin. I mean, come on, a Disney classic. This was a very impactful film for me. Um, <clears throat> he was also in Mrs. Doubtfire and Hook. Not great movies, uh, admittedly. Uh, they don't, I've, I've watched them both recently, and they don't hold up that well. But, but man, I was at just the right age for both of these films where they like imprinted on me. Then when I was a teenager, um, I discovered other movies he had done, like Dead Poets Society and Good Will Hunting, where Robin Williams is the wise mentor, the teacher. This guy's films practically raised me, which explains so much, by the way. <clears throat> um, man. One of the reasons I got into stand-up comedy back in the day and discovered that I actually liked to talk in front of people was Robin Williams. And then when he died in 2014, so tragically, that really shook me up. Uh, it is so sad to see that manic energy just gone from the world. And like, sure, his art lives on. People still watch his movies. People will be watching Robin Williams at least till my generation's gone. Maybe my kid's generation. But 100 years from now? 200 years, no one's going to be talking about Robin Williams. At best, he'll be a, a paragraph in some textbook about these things called movies we used to have, right? Like, that's where reading his biography, this book, was such a trip for me. Here is this larger-than-life figure, this person I idolized growing up, and their life is summarized in 500 pages. It's a story with a beginning and an end. It's a tragic story, it's a sad story, but there's also a lot of joy and laughter and dancing and mourning. That's all our lives are, is a story with a beginning and an end. And we don't get a say in those things. We don't get a say in most of the stuff that comes in the middle. Last week after church, <clears throat> Someone commented to me that these, uh, these Ecclesiastes sermons have been very existential, was the word they used. Um, and, the, and the question was, like, when do we get to the practical stuff? Where are the takeaways in this that we can just kind of, like, take and apply to our lives? And I really wish, I wish I could give you, like, three steps for letting go and letting God. You know, like, I wish, I wish this book came with, like, a five-step action plan for Im implementing the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, but that, 
That's not really what this book is doing. Ecclesiastes confronts us with these troubling questions, these existential questions, because the teacher wants to challenge us. The teacher wants to take away everything we cling to for security other than God. Whether it's your religion and how right you are, uh, your hope in the afterlife, your work and productivity, your family, your relationships, your wealth, the teacher is trying to pry open our fingers so that we can let go of all of it and live in the world like this, with our hands fully and completely open. Can we learn to let go of our need to control? Can we let go of the myth that we're going to live forever? Can we learn to live in sync with God's timing, God's seasons? Can we learn to dance to a song we didn't write? To take part in a story that we are not the author of, that we're not even the main characters of? Can we come to a place where we put our faith and our trust so fully in God, living according to God's rhythms, that we maybe begin to tap into that one source of life that is eternal and never changing, which is God himself. If we're going to do it, we can begin by recognizing, by accepting and embracing that there's a season for everything and a time for every purpose under heaven. Let's pray. God, you have made everything beautiful in its time. You created the sun, moon, and stars to separate day from night, to govern the seasons. You created the world with a divinely ordained rhythm, and you called it good. Lord, help us to learn that rhythm. Help us to dance to it, to find our place within it, so that we can live in step with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.